This is the Parenting ADHD Podcast with Penny Williams. Each week, Penny shares proven ADHD parenting strategies and her hard-won ADHD mama wisdom. This is not your physician's podcast. Penny discusses the genuine grit of the moment-by-moment peaks and valleys of this special parenthood. It's time to beat the chaos and challenges of raising a child with ADHD. Here's your host, Penny Williams. Welcome to episode 21 of the Parenting ADHD podcast. I'm really excited today to talk about how trying harder doesn't work for our kids with ADHD, um, any kids really who are unique learners. My guest today is Suzanne Cresswell. She's an occupational and physical therapist who's worked with unique learners for over three decades. Suzanne works to educate and provide proven solutions and strategies to those that parent, instruct, and work with unique learners. By creating an understanding of unique learners and their learning behavior, she helps parents, teachers, and the students themselves find the ability in learning disability. Thanks so much for joining me today, Suzanne. Thank you, Penny. Good morning to you. Absolutely. I love how you um, say that you find the ability in learning disability, because I think it's very true that our kids, despite having learning disabilities, also have strengths and talents and gifts as well. And um, I know often we use that as part of um, the strategy to address those weaknesses. Absolutely. Every every single child, I would say, um, ha- has their gift in that sense. And ultimately, we want to be looking at solving problems from a different direction. And usually, um, that's what the unique learner is capable of doing, is looking at problems from a different perspective and really looking at the Rubik's Cube, if you will, kind of from a, you know, a different light and as sure. a result coming up with different solutions, which uh, are sorely needed, really. Uh, we, we uh, in, in the general community, you know, look for that um, individual with their unique problem solving to be able to be on the edge and um, make change and um, so forth. So, yeah, I think we need to be fostering these unique minds. They're going to be of great assistance uh, in teaching all of us um, how to manage ourselves and our resources and so forth down the line. Absolutely. Can you start out uh, for a few moments and describe what um, your definition of a unique learner is? Sure. Uh, uh, Learning is really taking in information and, and processing that information and being able to adapt um, to circumstances. And, and how we learn about our world and take in information is is very individual for each one of us. But particularly in the education system, it becomes a challenge as um, we tend to break down information in, in, in linear bits, teach the bit, and then um, make some understanding about the whole Uh, And yet there are other individuals who will learn um, more from a whole perspective. You'll see children who can um, resolve a math problem very quickly, but have great difficulty showing the work, showing the linear steps. This is the child I'm talking about. So a unique learner is someone who is uh, um, 
how shall it's cut in a way I would say we've made our society so dang complicated Mm -hmm. and our education model to plug into that society so in some ways I think it's a if you don't mind a problem with our society (laughs) more than the individual themselves that this mismatch occurs at all but if we want to talk about a unique learner then we're talking about somebody who makes sense of information in a different way and potentially comes up with different solutions as a result so this is the child uh, the unique learner is a child who has dyslexia unique learner is a child who has adhd who may be on the autism spectrum um unique learners, even children who have physical disabilities like cerebral palsy, they are experiencing their world in a different way, collecting information from a different perspective. And as a result, um, their way of processing information, their way of learning is unique. Right. So it's not necessarily children who have a specified learning disorder like dyslexia or dysgraphia or dyscalculia. It's it encompasses that broader spectrum of the way in which students learn um, and if that's different from kind of our societal norm of education, at least here in the United States. Uh-huh. It, it, uh, you know, our uh, education system, we're, we're so um, lucky, really, to, to have this education model, not not, we haven't always uh, throughout history, and you know, there's other places on the planet that don't subscribe to general education in the same way as uh, we do in our society, and it, it's a, a, a tremendous project. And inevitably, to be able to do so in a cost-effective manner, um, there there's programs that are developed and. And often those programs are developed for a certain kind of thinker. Mm-hmm. And so not not laying blame, I don't have suggestions for improvement, but you can't help but see over 30 years of working with children and children in the schools, the child may enter the school system with aspirations of, you know, their little developing belief system. And, and if I could um, um, use an example, like their their spirit, their soul, their, their personality is like a heart-shaped or a diamond-shaped or a star-shaped or what have you. Mm-hmm. But really by second and third grade, those, that way of learning, that, that mental way of taking information in better be cubed shaped <laughs> or you're going right. to miss out by about third or fourth grade. So we softly soften the edges of the heart and the star and, and in some way create that mind to be cube shaped so it can more, if you will, conveniently move along the um, conveyor belt of, of mass education. There's that. And, and again, um, it's not a criticism. It, it, it is what it is. We're, we're doing the best we can. Despite that, there's teachers that are breaking through and learning to work with the children who have star-shaped minds and heart-shaped minds and fostering these um, unique ways of unraveling information and and helping these children to, to um, be able to open the minds of other children in the classroom, different types of learning. Um, I was in a class, the teacher uh, would teach her spelling list by physically moving the body in a way that replicated the words, 
but it was the children in the class on a Monday that would develop, you know, the movement patterns. And then by Friday, the spelling test. And, and it was very clear the results she was getting was showing tremendous change. But anyway, on a Monday, for example, the, the word was butterfly. So you'd think the movement pattern, I would, mm-hmm. typical thinker, would be flapping the wings. But no, right. it wasn't. You know, it was butter, like buttering the toast, and then fly like a, a bee fly. <laughs> but it worked for wow. these unique learners. To, yeah. And it just showed how, you know, I never would have, you know, chosen that. In, but that had, anyway. No, that's great. The teachers are breaking through and coming up with models that are addressing all of these learners. I know I'm talking a lot, but I want to say something while I keep in mind. When you were saying this is not just for children with learning disabilities, I wanted to leap in and make sure I don't forget. Many of the um, aspects of the information I I unraveled in the studies I did to prepare a a book that I wrote um, were straight out of the work I had done in sports medicine as a physical therapist. When we're talking about high-level athletics, we're talking about the mind and body working crucially together. So, for Mm -hmm. example, uh, when I first graduated from university, I worked with the Australian women's swim team when they came to our area as a uh, place to practice before the Olympics. And I worked with the sports psychologist there. And we were uh, we were able to do these time studies and so forth. But when I uh, did uh, called proprioceptive action, when I did push and pull and squeezing in in um, OT world, we call them, you know, hand hugs and arm hugs. But when mm-hmm. I was doing this compressions over the entire body and limb of each athlete before they swam, once they got on the blocks, they had a heightened sense of where their muscles and joints were so that right. they could function more effectively in the pool and their their speed went up and you'll see if you watch the swimmers they do tap their legs tap their arms shake their hands flutter and yeah. flutter and it's it's not because they're cold they're they're getting that information into their brains so that they have a heightened sense of their body's parameters and these are the very strategies that we use with unique learners as well because we are trying to connect the mind and the body for optimal performance in a school system maybe we're talking about cognitive cognitive performance, but in high level athletics, physical performance. Anyway, mm-hmm. just to, the, yes, these are, these are aspects of learning that we all uh, appreciate and, and, um, you know, could all benefit from movement, for example, being brought into the learning process, uh, particularly uh, for the child with ADHD, bringing, bringing in movement complementing that with the homework time. Yeah, uh, my son's first grade teacher actually had um, some CDs that she would play called Movement to Math. And every Uh single morning, they started the morning by doing these um, Movement to Math activities. And it involved physical movement, but also learning. And there was music involved and, you know, just a lot of different senses and a lot of different types of learners were all engaged within that um, way that she provided that lesson. Um, and it was really powerful. You know, she she was very big on differentiated instruction and that um, really was able to reach a variety of different learners and different students. And, you know, the way you described different learners and all these different 
shapes. As parents, we often talk about our kids being the square peg and we're trying to push them into the round hole that is mass education um, Mm -hmm. because it's designed really not for kids who learn differently. It's designed more for, um, you know, fitting, for being the same as everyone else and doing it the same way as everyone else. And so, you know, as parents, we often struggle with how to have their instruction um, individualized so that it works for them and the way that they learn. Um, So... I I, want to touch real quickly, you know, a lot of parents that will be listening to this podcast will already know if their child has um, ADHD for sure. Many will know if they also have a learning disability, you know, a specific learning disability. But can you touch on just real briefly how a parent who may not have identified that yet would see some signs or symptoms that... Um, there's more to the story for their child, maybe than ADHD or autism, that there really might be a specific learning disability that also needs to be addressed? Uh, Yes, I'd be happy to do that. Uh, We want to be observing the child really from, if you will, a detective mode. And I mean, full on detective, like you are the student and your child now becomes the teacher Mm -hmm. and you are... You have little cutout holes in your newspaper and you've got a pad and pen and you're observing the child. You're really a detective. You're the the non-judgmental observer. And um, you want to see how productive the child is in their ability to learn when you interpret that in a broad sense, how they're making sense of the information as it appears in their circumstance, how they're blending that knowledge and and then moving forward. So uh, for my son, um, when he was learning to draw a circle, I think he drew four of them. And and so the, you know, which one do you like best, mom? And, you know, I like the first one because I can tell that was your um, first one. And, you know, look at these lines where you were really thinking and, whoa, you lost a little control. Look at this line is, and then I, I like this one because I can tell, you know, that you learned, look at this line's much smoother and this opening is much smaller. And then this third one I like because I can tell how you learned and it's also a perfect circle and way to go. So you want to be able to see how the child is gaining information in that example. So maybe we can talk about uh, toys. So they're playing with a car and the car hits something and is non-productive, but they figure out how to move that or move it into a play or series, or they take that activity where they kind of hit a wall and they learn from it and incorporate it in a functional way. This is a, this is a brain working here, you know, brain working here. And it, don't mess with it, you know, and, and we, there, here's a child who is bringing information in and, and, and learning from it. Um, but it doesn't change the fact that they are having to superimpose that on the chessboard of life. So then the parent needs to understand that, um, uh, what the child is facing environmentally in their school situation or their social situation or their or um, activities that they do in church and so forth and um, decide if that is in reasonable rhythm with you know the other individuals or or you know is that mm-hmm. make the the fact that other people are are moving and working at a different pace is that 
um, going to impede your child. And yes, no, um, whether they're doing something functional, if they hit a wall, hit a wall, hit a wall, hit a wall, not very functional, you might ha- have a unique learner on your hand that you need some strategies for. But hit a wall, think about it, learn about it, try a different strategy perhaps would be a wait and see um, depending on how that fits in with their social world around them. So you might have a child who clearly demonstrates learning but does so at such a slow rate that it's really, it's just not going to fit in, like you said, with the round peg, square hole and so forth. So so you're looking at brain working here and and really how, how functional is this child able to learn about their world and do they need some strategies? So you may see a child um, who I call the space hog. There's children that have trouble with space in general. They don't really fully understand their own body parameters and they um, have not yet developed the the milestone of working with the hands cooperatively at midline mm-hmm. and even more developmentally mature is to be able to have the hands actually cross midline so my right hand goes across the mid portion of my body over to the left side to pick up a toy these children are not able to cross the midline they have difficulty with Uh, subtle, if you watch, they have difficulty with trunk rotation. So they end up sitting at the cafeteria, you know, straddled over the cafeteria stool, eating, you know, with their fork or their spoon to their right, you know, Mm -hmm. not at center. And when they're writing as well, they're all kind of cattywankas in their chair. They've got the paper in an unusual position, but it's not midline. And when you're playing card games on a Friday night for pizza night, family night, they're taking up all the space or their elbows are way out there to roll the dice they don't have that sense of space and so this is a child that you can see yes they're learning yes or that but in terms of physically fitting into the space and time of the social rhythm of of their you know family activity and other social activities perhaps school activities this is a child who may need some strategies the space hog and uh other children will have um Show difficulties, uh, for instance, with the ADHD child maybe um, moving uh, ahead very, very quickly in the work that they're doing and um, and then not always um, being able to pick up all the nuances and details. And so they kind of learn the splinter skill of the multiplication table, for example, And as long as they've had a lot of sleep and can think clearly and so forth, they can reproduce that multiplication table. But because they don't, they they weren't able to go through the steps of it. It's not intuitive. It's it's kind of on the frontal cortex and the memory section, which is takes a lot of energy to um, recruit. You know that information. That's a child Mm -hmm. who's like. Shh, shh, you know, I'm, I'm thinking, I can't, you know, right. there's even one sound in the classroom because they need everything to just line up perfectly because they're operating on that strict, uh, sh- you know, short-term memory versus mm-hmm. children around them that may be moving that information into different sections of the brain in a more intuitive and less effortful manners. And um, so these are all, these are all things to watch for. Like you say, when we're looking outside of, um, the children that we often talk about unique learners as uh, the autistic child and um, the child with um, hyperactivity and ADHD and such. Right. And what I'm hearing you say is that 
it's not necessarily about grades or even about being on grade level. I know a lot of times parents um, feel like their child needs more support in school in certain areas because of learning challenges, and they're met with resistance when that student is on grade level or um, is is um, not failing. You know, they don't have a D or an F. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, in my experience, and I know it to be true for many others, those aren't always the only um, marker of capability and functioning ability um, within the school and within the classroom. Uh, that That's true. It's, it, it, it's um, an interesting way, you know, in a modern society, how we divvy up caring for those um, that have needs. You know, we have a, a system to, to care for our elderly. We have a system to care for our young um, and a health care system for our medical needs and a workers' compensation system for injuries at work. And then um, challenges that relate to a child being able to um, access the curriculum and to be able to function in school actually is a very narrowly defined lens. Um, yes. And, and the, um, the schools, depending on the expertise of the staff available and um, uh, they, they may have already on deck uh, many, many solutions to be able to work with children with different types of learning needs and uh yeah, it ends up being a set of uh, it's seemingly black and white criteria, but uh, actually it's it's very gray. It's very a difficult thing to to define exactly what contributes to a child's ability to be able to uh, access the curriculum, to use the legal language, and um, that as you say, it doesn't. It's not always dependent on the grade level, and it seems like an arbitrary. Um, cutoff point uh, but it but nevertheless that that is certainly in, in place at the moment right children children can benefit tremendously from um, the types of education models that employ movement into the day-to-day activities and I think mm-hmm. that you were describing that the math lesson was done in a movement lesson type of activity and these things are, are very key and I think the more that teachers begin to understand and if we can work perhaps with the population of um, teachers interested in special education when they themselves are still students in schools and if we can start to work at this level um uh, Because I have, I have stepped aside of the debate, more services, less services, this and that. I'm a physical therapist and an occupational therapist, and I have a physical therapy OT practice. And I get to have, do all that heavy lifting, (laughs) trying to keep my clinic afloat. And Mm -hmm. so the schools in my personal uh, way of me is my joy. And so I, I choose to not... Uh, debate too much lack of, is that lack of service? Is that over-utilization of services? And instead, I kind of just, you know, one time was saying, you know, God, what, you know, should I do? Who should I help? And God's kind of like, well, fold the socks in front of you and, you know, just carry on. So it's the same kind of thing. So I just, you know, what should I do about, should I ask for more or less fight, go to the district? And it's just like, okay, what's in front of you work with? So that's what I'm saying. 
to parents and teachers. Okay, what's in front of us? Let's work with. And let's let's be very conscientious about how we are working with really all our children. They are our tomorrow. They are our world peace plan, bringing mm-hmm. good people onto the planet, let's face it. But um, it, particularly the child who has a different learning style, the unique learner, we want to be able to see those activities that create a, a sense of coherence and, and positive uh, learning behaviors, really. Um, uh, and you know, learning. Demonstrating. Go ahead. Tell me. And demonstrating what we were talking about at, at the beginning there, that, that that child who's showing that they're able to move the toy car, you know, equal to a different place each time that they're learning about it or that um, they're learning how to interact with the bathwater correctly. And each time they interact with it, you can see this type of learning going on. And um, children will teach us if we sit back as the student of our child who are teachers, they will teach us that which they bring into their world to kind of dial up and and get them enthused and excited. And you and I and us adults, we all know what we do. You know, maybe it Mm -hmm. involves turning the music up. I'm not sure. But we all can instantly understand what I'm talking about in terms of dialing up the brain for alertness. And we also have strategies, um, a warm bath or a conversation with a friend to dial down or a good book or what have you to dial down. Well, children, especially unique learners, don't have access to that dial as readily. And it's actually, it's too, it's made too subtle. We want to be able to provide our children with instructions on that. So, um, you, as the de- detective, as the as the uh, um, unconditional kind of observer, you are rostering these things that raise the child's level of excitement, and you're rostering those things that bring the child kind of down to a calmer state, and. So now you have this mental idea of, of how to, you know, raise the level up and raise the level down. They've mm-hmm. shown you that. And now you as the adult, only you are able to figure out, is this dialed upness appropriate to the circumstances? Well, it would have been great if he was dialed up on the soccer field. We just left, you know, with his brother. But since we're in the public library, this dialed upness ain't working so good. Yeah. Or else, yes, we love that calm. Look at him. He's so adorable and calm and small and squidgy, but he's, you know, writing a math test. He has to be more alert kind of thing. So they don't have that access to be able to dial up, dial down, and we can teach that to them once we understand it in their speak, in their language, and because they've shown us. Um, And then the next step then is to teach them to be able to initiate that on their own and then as adults to be able to advocate for it because it's not going to change. They're they're dancing at a little different rhythm and we need to make space for that and we can do that more easily if they can advocate, they have that self-realization and can advocate for themselves. Yeah, and I love that analogy mm -hmm. of dialing up and dialing down. I think that's a Mm -hmm. really strong visual for parents, but also for the children themselves. You know, that's, that's a very accessible language to use with your child, or for a teacher to use with a student, in order to kind of convey to them that they need to be more alert, at a certain time, they need to be dialed up or 
that their dial is way too high and they need to pull back and, and turn it down a little bit. You know, I talk sometimes about how parents should be the thermostat and not the thermometer, which I love that analogy that I, I don't even oh, know yeah. where I got it. But it kind of goes along that same vein that, you know, if you're just the thermometer, you're just mirroring back that temperature that you're reading. But if you're the thermostat, you're helping to adjust it to a better, more appropriate level. Um, and that dial is the same sort of idea. And I think, you know, especially for elementary kids and probably middle school too, but really everyone, that idea of a dial and dialing it back and dialing it up is is really powerful. That's a really good strategy and tool that parents and teachers can use in the classroom or during homework or really, especially for, say, ADHD and kids who have um, that high H factor, that hyperactivity, you know, that's a really good um, bit of language that parents can use with them to help um, teach some self-regulation. That's that's exactly right. Right. And to, to be able to understand that aspect of learning, you know, to realize the brain is it's a central operating station for all this incoming data. We uh, our senses, taste, touch, smell, sight, hearing all that incoming data is coming in and being processed and mixed. But in addition to that, the brain has an ability to um excite itself facilitate is what we say neurologically has a uh, or to inhibit or dial down mm -hmm. and various sensory systems are classic for promoting dialing up um, facilitating or dialing down inhibiting so that the brain this is a function that we need to articulate, you know, in ourselves and for our children. So yes, the, the thermostat idea uh, is also excellent. And, and whatever types of imagery is required, the concept is essential mm -hmm. exactly. <laughs> to parenting, particularly a child with ADHD, because that's where they are. They're out of that. They're out of rhythm or, or society's out of rhythm with them. Chicken, egg phenomena. Right. But the point is it's a rhythm um, challenge. And when we talk about rhythm, we're talking about timing, you know, a metronome, boom, mm -hmm. boom, boom, that's rhythm and timing. And so very often the children uh, then do well with activities that involve that rudimentary sense of rhythm and timing. And, and likely that's why these movement activities, particularly done to a beat of music, are uh, very welcome by the child's brain and very necessary for the child's brain who happens that their unique learning challenge is being out of rhythm, either too sped up or too slowed down. But it's, it's a rhythm issue, which is a timing issue. Yeah, I love that you talk about rhythm. And I, and I find it really interesting because my son actually is very um, calmed by music that has a very strong rhythm, a strong beat to it. And he's actually, he's 15 now, he's actually just started making his own music with 
um, beat software. Um, So he's very into that idea of rhythm. It's very, um, it draws him in, you know, and he's really struggled to find a passion or find a talent. And that seems to be kind of the direction he's going. So I find it very fascinating that you talk about how essential um, just a feeling of rhythm in general is um, and and with being kind of in step with that rhythm. And our kids, you know, who are unique learners are definitely very often out of step with the rhythm of, um, you know, mass education and our public schools. So, you know, that idea is, I think, very powerful for parents and one that I had not come across or thought about before. So I I really thank you for sharing that. I think that's really going to be helpful to a lot of our parents. And, And you talked a little bit about how that correlates with brain functioning and with learning. Um, And I think, you know, that that's really at the core of helping unique learners is to understand how their brain is working, how it's similar to what's expected from neurotypical students, and how it's different, how it's functioning in a different way. And that that difference isn't necessarily a bad thing. It can be harnessed for good. It can be harnessed for um, accelerating learning, um, but it's just different. You know, we, we need more, I think, awareness in the school system about neurodiversity and and how, you know, a neurotypical child isn't, um, quote, normal, and a non-neurotypical child is, you know, somehow broken or damaged, but that everybody just has a different brain and a different functioning, um, but much the same capability. That's exactly right. Um couple things um, come to mind there. Uh, you were describing your son's interest in music and um, and we in our conversation kind of happened to move in that direction about rhythm and timing and music and um, and that led you then to speak about your son's ability. Now um, that's exactly what we were talking about at the beginning that here's a child who looks at the world differently like mm-hmm. it or lump like it or lump it, really, you know, he at some level recognizes that he he needs this um, external rhythm uh, as nutrients for his brain in order to function well. And whether he, yes. under, you know, understood that in a way he could articulate or not. And so now because he uh, that rhythm and the music serves a different function in him, he's going to see something in it that the rest of us don't that will probably could very likely ad- advance mankind. I mean, what? Why not? But I, I mean, there. This is how the her- hero's journey works. Is is this very story with your son? Now, whether or not you knew about the um, rhythm and timing, and I, I want to tell you more. There's some a couple other cool things. But whether or not the parent understood that, uh, and you're saying that was a novel idea to you, what you did understand is is the uh, I, the importance of loving your child, and through that sure. continual love, the child develops a sense of confidence and becomes brave, really. And he, even though they're potentially acutely aware of the distinctions between themselves and their peers, at an unfortunate time, they're developing self-awareness anyways. 
when they come home, when that's a safe harbor or when they're with a particular teacher or a neighbor or what have you, when they've got that emotional safety, then they can explore. And that's what your son has been able to do. And I do want to describe a couple of um, neurophysiologic principles and and really emphasize that you could just put your hands over your ears right now and go la 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 and and continue to love your child fiercely and whether you do it from a neurophysiologic point of view understanding say the rhythm and timing and issue Mm -hmm. um, or whether you do it from just looking at your child and loving your child and putting into your child's life what they need to be successful we will end up at the same place so but let me describe to you why that uh, music lesson for the children worked well in your son's math class the movement and so forth the brain really is a mushroom the the You've got the stem and you've got the cap. So the cap is the cortex of the brain. And as an occupational therapist, I give that to the teachers. (laughs) That's where they superimpose reading, writing, and arithmetic on that cortex. But the stem, the brain stem, is where all the nutrients uh, move through in order to allow the cap, the mushroom cap or the brain uh, cortex, to function well. And so um, the... Activities that go on in the brainstem are more evident when the child is maturing from infancy to toddlerhood. And because they're so evident there, we think of them as childish and they don't come up again, it seems, in our life much. Um, but they are they continue to be active and they continue to provide nutrients so that the cortex can uh, perform its function of of the complicated memory and reasoning that occurs in our modern society. So when the child is first born, the child uh, infant really is moving from the buoyant environment to the physical plane of the Earth's surface. Their first relationship really is with the planet, with the gravitational pull of the Earth's surface. And the brain processes that immediately in a center. It's called the vestibular center, vestibular Mm -hmm. center. And then the child uh, must then figure out how they can lift their head so they don't suffocate and or lift their um, head so that they can move to a source of food. So instantly that feeling of gravity acting on the body has to be communicated to another area of the brain so that it can begin to coordinate the muscles and joints, for example, to lift if the child's on its tummy, to lift its head up so it doesn't suffocate, you know, just clearly just basic survival types. of. So these two systems need to be integrated together, the vestibular system that operates the sense of gravity and the system that uh, lets the brain know what the muscles and joints are doing. And that's a long word also called proprioception. And the child is going to learn about their world looking and hearing and so forth. And they'll begin to collect information about their world. But it's not until the tactile system, the sense of touch begins to mature Uh, And you know it's maturing because the child's touching everything. So the toddler, for a while, you're telling them, don't put that in your mouth. They're exploring Mm -hmm. everything through their oral aperture. And then the tactile system matures and they're touching everything. They're learning everything through touch. And then uh, later, 
moves to their visual system. So you're telling your teenager, don't stare. Uh, but, you know, because they, they're learning about the world predominantly mm-hmm. visually and auditorily. And so forth, it kind of moves through this. Once a child develops in that tactile system, though, they begin to uh, understand their own body boundaries. They can uh, and they can make categorizations that weren't accessible to them when they when that system wasn't functioning as clearly. So the child can now discern if something by touch soft hard, cold, smooth, etc. Right. And that and at the exact same time the brain develops the ability to categorize things. So you must have touch so you can begin to separate yourself from your people, places and things around you and then to be able to create categories that starts at the time that the tactile system matures. So that to organize your glove compartment or your purse or your child to organize their backpack actually taps way back to when their sense of touch developed in, you know, one and a half, two and so forth. So the vestibular system, sense of gravity, proprioceptive system, that awareness of movement of the muscles and joints mm-hmm. and the tactile system. Those three things are the brain stem. So when we do yoga, we're moving our body in relationship to gravity and we're feeling our body respond to gravity and we're feeling through our tactile system. So we are richly stimulating the vestibular proprioceptive tact, the VPT in order for our mushroom cap you know, to, to, to work that day, or we're doing exercises or we're walking work as adults, we're continually stimulating the brainstem so that the cortex can function more actively. And so what I notice in unique learners, um, is that they have different ways of learning different things that they're seeking. Some are seeking more on the movement level. Some are seeking more on the touch level. Some are seeking more on the feeling gravity operate on their le- So mm-hmm. you, and your, your son is getting the rhythm and the timing, which ultimately uh, is correlated with the sense of touch as well. And so That's he's so fascinating. feeding his brain that information that he requires in order to be quote brain working here. And it's not something he, he, learned or maybe is aware of but it's a strategy that he developed and as a in when you're in detective mode and you can look at your child's behavior really as already perfect that they are already doing what they need to do to help their brain function and then you as the adult in their life get to decide whether or not that perfect behavior is actually going to fit right because <laughs> we're heading to grandma's house and right and so then you then you need to be able to assist the child in making you know their neurologic system basically fit the environmental system and to do it in such a way that when the child is mature enough to understand like oh you, i could i see you moving so quickly in the back seat i see you fighting with the seat belt and i see you also kicking and uh sometimes you tell me your tummy gets upset when you start kicking like that and um, interesting. And you just kind of bookmark it like, and then, mm. um, and then later, like, it's like, it's the rain. I'm seeing the rain bouncing off the windshield and it is what it is. And how about that? It's rain kind of that kind right. of like be just being a sports caster, basically pointing out what's occurring and he's kicking the seat and he's yanking, but not being disrespectful. I don't mean, sure. I'm, I know I'm sounding no, just bringing cool. awareness, I think for, our, exactly. for our kids. Yeah. Yes. And then you and must, builds must, those must, senses. 
find a moment somewhere soon where the child is doing something different. Like, oh, you're giving me a hug. Your legs have stopped moving so frantically. You're not kicking a thing. Wow. Tell me about your tummy. Is your tummy calmer? Interesting. Okay, good to know. And then and then you can bookmark that and bring that back. You know the time when you were kicking in the backseat? Is that how you feel right now? And do you remember yeah. the time when you hugged me and did that calm you down? Okay, let's do keep kicking for a minute. That's fine. But once we get to grandma, let's do that big hug thing. And then when you walk up her stairs, tell me how your tummy feels. It's just a different way. Yeah, and it really um, sounds very similar to the Zones of Regulation program, because in that program, you work on awareness of emotional, social, um, and and physical, and then you work toward connecting strategies that help them move between the zones. And so what you've described is basically that same principle of saying, okay, when we do this, this other thing gets better and and making our kids really aware of that and you know the language that you use is great for younger kids because you're not talking about oh you're in this zone and the zone needs to change but you're just making you're just pointing out correlations and bringing awareness Mm -hmm. at that stage um, which really builds those skills for kids their self-awareness and self-regulation so I love that and I I'm so thankful that you talked about the role of sensory in learning, um, because I think that's very misunderstood that, you know, all of those different sensory issues that a lot of our kids have and a lot of unique learners have is affecting their ability to learn and function on a cognitive level because it moves up the system from the stem to the cap. Um, that's, that's really powerful information. Um, and I think, you know, back to my son and the rhythm, he, he has an iPad that he uses at school because he also has dysgraphia and significant executive functioning deficits. And so he does all his work on an iPad where he doesn't have to manage a lot of paper and, and what we have found is that he's kind of sneaking off of task into creating music. And now I'm wondering if he's doing that as a self-regulation mechanism or to help him refocus where it really on the surface just looks like he's getting distracted or he doesn't want to do his work, you know. Um, So that's very interesting. You know, all these things really tie together. You have a chance to to rethink that. You want to observe, is brain working here? I mean, are you getting mm-hmm. optimum amount of um, work productivity out of this young man? He's doing well in his grades overall and so forth. In which case, I, I recommend honoring the strategy and making space for it. There's right, that's just what I was man, thinking. Yeah, who's in... Um, college now but in his later years in high school it was referred to as doodling and he was uh, Mm -hmm. always kind of called to task for um, doodling basically that that somehow it was uh, something expected of a child a certain age but not this individual well he is now fielding offers all over the place for um, cartoon work and you know he's he's just uh, out of high school now so um that's my you know, daughter. She She's always been a doodler and really called out. Now she's a freshman in college and she's majoring in art, you know, and that was and, her way of focusing. Yes, I forgot to say that part. Clearly, mm-hmm. that, was, that was his way of focusing. He had excellent Absolutely. auditory memory, 
but the lighting was difficult for him and he needed to cast his eyes down. And then the sound level in the classroom, it was very difficult to tune out certain voices and, and right. kids repeating types of things that he found, you know, he couldn't block out. So then he started writing and, and then drawing and it's like, brilliant that's brilliant yeah. it's so, self-regulation uh, but it can be mm-hmm. you know it can be the thing if you for look these at kids it, later you know absolutely if you look at it from a, a vpt a, a brainstem level a vestibular proprioceptive tactile you you'll be able to see what sensory system that they're tapping into in order to keep their brain engaged and mm-hmm. and irregardless of what it looks like sometimes it looks like they're not trying hard enough and it sometimes it looks like their posture is slouched back or they looks like they're being inattentive and but as the detective i'm encouraging teachers and parents to just hang in there a little longer and you know with the cutout in the newspaper and really watch how that plays out for them because it's very likely a strategy that they've um developed and uh, refined over the years you know mm-hmm. it is it's a thing that's just keeping it all together for them as a detective we're looking for what function it serves for our kids and then that you know that shows if it's a strategy that's useful or if it's more of a distraction because a function of a certain behavior can certainly be um, avoidance or distraction you know it's not always a positive thing for sure but um, a lot of times it is and I think doodling during class lectures is a really classic example of that of a student who um, is is really using what works for them to focus, to be present in um, learning. It's not always just a distraction um, or someone who's not paying attention. And and unfortunately, you know the the common thought process and education about that most of the time is that it is distraction. It is somebody who's not paying attention because they're not looking at the speaker. But for a lot of people, they're better able to focus if they're not looking at the speaker. Um, So, so many nuances, so many um, different behaviors that have different functions for our kids and, and often they're positive. Sometimes they're not. Um, And then we look at how, you know, we can shift them in those instances. Um, Before we run out of time, I want to make sure that we do talk about um, how it's not about trying harder, because I know that um, that's a message that a lot of our kids, a lot of unique learners get throughout the day at school. I know it's often a message that they get at home from parents. And, you know, I can think back to a time when my son was, um, I want to say fifth or sixth grade, and he was constantly getting this message that he just needed to try harder and work harder, and he could achieve what everybody else could achieve. Um and he would come home and he would look at me and he would say, nobody understands how hard I'm trying. I'm already trying super hard. And he was so frustrated by that because he really felt like nobody believed him. Nobody believed in what he was doing and what he was saying that everyone just really felt like he wasn't trying hard enough. And, um, 
you know, that's a constant struggle for most of our kids. And, and I think it's something that we want to educate parents about, we want to educate teachers about, but also get your perspective on what we can do about that. Why is it not just a matter of trying harder? And how do we address it? How do we help our kids in that space? Right. The idea of trying harder um, really presupposes a, a behavioral background that that uh, that that the uh, child has the building blocks to be successful in the task, and that it is their inability to engage enthusiastically to bring all of those skills to the forefront and produce the work being required. That's what try harder is, and. Uh, and there are and there are certainly times where that's excellent coaching. Usually, however, if if the parent or teacher finds themselves repeating that phrase or phrases that are similar, or repeating that phrase more frequently or louder, uh, that's a red flag. That's an indicator. This, this is a child you're speaking to that probably has already tried uh, as hard as they can, and and mm-hmm. if that particular idea and encouragement would have been successful, they would have been successful by now. So so give it a rest. If you're repeating it or phrases like it, um, then your assumption is that it's behaviorally based and you will uh, then be limited in your ability to deal with it, that you've got loss of privileges, you've got timeouts, what else do you have with behavioral approach? So we need to look at the Rubik's Cube differently. What is what is occurring that the child is having difficulty when um, you just still want to say, sit up and try harder to the, the uh, child in high school, the young, young man or woman in high school who's like slouched way back in their chair and their elbows extended and they've got, you know, their pencil way at the, you know, end of their reach and they look half asleep and you just, right. it's so, uh, um, it, it, it's inconsistent with what we think of and, and it taps into everyone's, you know, sense of respect for elders and all different types of things <laughs> when yeah. you see a young person in that particular posture. Um, but very often children who have difficulty feeling the gravitational effects of the Earth's surface, so they have trouble with feeling gravity and responding to it. They have they're a little bit clumsy. They can't manage an obstacle course uber well because they bump into spaces. You know that's three dimensional mm-hmm. space, and then they can't have difficulty with writing because writing is two dimensional space. But we're still talking space, um, right? And so they're they're needing to feel uh, where their body is in space more, and where they're going to feel that is the seat pan of their chair and the backrest and uh, very often you don't realize it but they've got very clenched hips and they're pushing their heels down into the ground they're really feeling the ground if you ever can imagine maybe your first time on skis you know and you get off the toe and you just you really want to feel your body's weight over those skis and you keep checking it and testing it and you need to know where your body is in space and maybe the person you're standing with is going on about the name of the run and the coffee you're going to have afterwards and you're going to meet up and like you couldn't care less you're just trying to balance right. and that's what these these kids are trying to do that's why your son was so tired at the end of the day they they are dealing with that brainstem stuff a little tiny bit all day long so so mm-hmm. the child 
could either sit up and work, 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 and probably not be able to filter out and think straight sitting up like that all day long. So this child is choosing to use the seat pan and the seat back to really feel where they are in space. And then when we add a judgment, uh, like sit up and try harder, then it further confuses them because they actually were being quite successful in their opinion, uh, being able to continue to participate in the cognitive aspect of the experience. And so try, try harder really is a red flag for the adult to begin to look more deeply. Do we have a space hog here? Do we have a child who, um, it has some kind of motor coordination challenges or uh, a child who has difficulty tolerating uh, the sense of sense of touch. Some children don't tolerate the sense of paper and don't really understand that. And they end up grasping the pencil in an odd way or mm-hmm. they're reluctant to secure the paper with the other hand so it doesn't wiggle. And, and, and they don't really know because it's not lack of touch per se. It's just that some days touch feels funny, like some days that tag on your shirt bothers you and other days it doesn't. And, you know, neurotypical, we can filter that out. But that same unique learner with other circumstances. So try harder is is a, definitely it's a piece of coaching advice that has its place and, and is very worthy. But when it's uh, used too frequently, then it's because the adult is looking at the perspective just kind of slowly from a behavioral point of view. And if we can step back and look at it more from a neurophysiologic point of view, assessing vestibular proprioceptive tactile or forget all those big words and and I don't know how else to say it, just love, just love the child as the teacher care enough you know to examine and and uh trust you know the child is already perfect and so if we can just kind of shower some love and help that lotus blossom open it will become revealed to the child and to others you know what it is that is causing their behavior to be what it is and oh before we lose time too i think it's really key in these older kids to explore that and articulate that because do you find this? It moves into social anxiety unless we can help them in their younger years understand how awesome their brain is, what they need to do to make space for their brain in the world. Otherwise, they, they, they don't know which brain they have today. And if you don't know, it creates insecurity. And then yeah. you add that to a young person in the self-awareness years of mm-hmm. teens and then moving away to college. Uh, so... Um, yeah, I it's, think criticism and then we also have to do this, you know, Penny, we we have we really have to be able to help these young people. We really do. Yes. Yes. Mm-hmm. I feel very passionate about that as mm-hmm. well. Um, when you talked about the idea that if you've told the same student over and over to try harder and things still have not changed or improved, that that's a signal of something else um, that ties very well into Ross Green's work, um, the book, The Explosive Child, the book, um, Raising Human Beings. He talks about you really have to, you know, behavior is just a symptom and you have to drill down and look at why the behavior happens. Because just addressing the behavior, say trying to add a punishment to it, is not addressing the reason that it happens. And then therefore you can't really change the behavior, you're not going to affect it in a positive way. And, you know, that that runs along the same lines in that 
you know, if if you're trying something over and over and it's not working, then that shows that it the 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 student, the child is not capable um, of doing what you're asking in the manner that you're asking. You know, Green says all the time, kids do well if they can, when they can. Um, And so if they're not doing well, we really need to be that detective and we need to figure out why, because that's where the real answers lie, you know, solving those real problems that are lying underneath and, and everything that you've talked about today, you know, understanding the sensory aspects and the functional aspects and the way the brain is working is going to help parents and teachers to really drill down and find those reasons behind that surface behavior. And, you know, when kids do well, if they can, and you know that, then as a teacher in the classroom, that teenager who's slouching in the chair and doodling and doesn't look at all engaged or paying attention, you're seeing that student in a different light now. You're not seeing them as just distracted or disrespectful or unmotivated. Now you're seeing them you know, as maybe there's a sensory um, need there that they're fulfilling, or, you know, there's um, some attentional issues that need to be better addressed, or what have you, you know, there's, there's so many different situations um, in school that kids can struggle with. And, and then it depends specifically on that child and their unique differences. But, you know, these examples are really great to help parents and teachers who are listening to really understand that there's almost always more to the story. And we just have to be that detective and drill down and find the reasons. And when we address those reasons, that's when we're going to start succeeding more in helping our unique learners. That that's right. I think the just try harder, just try harder overuse is is uh, what led me to write my book, Unique Learner Solutions. So right, so many of us are are working to come up with different ways of looking at um, the the similar issues. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and it's so helpful. And you mentioned your book, um, Unique Learner Solutions. I will have a link in the show notes for all of our listeners. That will go right to the book for them to be able to check that out. Um, you also have a Facebook page and a website, uniquelearnersolutions.com. And I will link up all of that in the show notes. Um, so we're going to wrap up. Was there anything else that you wanted to share today in this episode of the podcast? Sure. Um, at the website, Unique Learner Solutions, um, you can download an ebook I, that I've made available to your audience. And that's at uniquelearnersolutions.com backslash ebook. And it talks about the space hog and some of these other red flags and the just try harder as being a red flag as well. Fantastic. And I just wanted to make that available. And yeah, thank you so much for the work that you do. It's it's. uh, It's more than important. It's just this is a really vital population that can really have an impact on um, the decisions we make. I couldn't agree more. 
Absolutely. Yeah. And I thank you so much for having this conversation with me today and sharing your insights with the Parenting ADHD podcast um, audience and community. I know that they're going to find um, your insights extremely helpful. Um and I did too today. You know, I heard things from you today that I hadn't heard before, or hadn't thought about. And I've been pretty obsessed with ADHD and learning disabilities for over nine mm. years now. So, you know, these are some really fantastic insights and new perspectives that are going to be so valuable to our parents. And hopefully there will be teachers out there listening as well who um, want to understand their students better as well. So I really thank you for being on the show today. It's my pleasure. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to the Parenting ADHD Podcast with Penny Williams. If you like what you just heard, be sure to subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher. Visit the website, parentingadhdandautism.com for so much more on successfully raising kids with ADHD. Be sure to check out the podcast section as well for previous shows. Join us next time for more parenting strategies and insights that actually work for kids with ADHD.